If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and this week I'm joined by my co-host, Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm. Now, I spent the whole week on vacation, so I'm not as clued into the news as usual. So instead of picking the biggest news of the week, we just picked some of my favorite topics. Now, Alex, I haven't talked to you in a while because you got married. So how are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm married. I pulled it off. It was successful. Um, can report. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I can recommend it. Get married if you can. It's a lot of fun to have a big party and make all your friends fly in. Um, but I'm, I'm glad we did this version of equity, this kind of Kate's choice, because everything you picked is great. And I'm actually honestly very excited about the rundown. Equity, Kate's choice edition. I like that. <laughs> it's good. All right, let's get into it. We're going to start with what we're calling the IPO update. And I think I'm going to kick this one off by talking a little bit about Postmates, one of the, I don't know, better known delivery companies, I would say, and but one that hasn't made as much noise lately as Uber Eats or DoorDash. But one thing that uh, equity listeners, I'm sure, remember is that Postmates has filed privately to go public. And so when uh, Postmates CEO Bastian showed up at the Fortune event, Kate, what was the name of the Fortune event? Fortune Brain yeah, something? Yeah, it was Fortune Brainstorm, I Thank believe. you. Uh, he was there and he gave an interview and he was talking about two things that are relevant to our interest. One is the IPO, which he says is still, you know, they still want to do that. So it's on on the table still. And also he answered a question about some of the rumors swirling around uh, concerning maybe selling Postmates instead of going public. And I just wanted to kind of summarize what he said, and I hope I get this right. But effectively, he said, you know, when you are setting your company up to go public, you often get a lot of inbound. And that comment was interesting because it points out that, at least as he phrased it, Postmates wasn't going out to sell itself. People were instead coming to it, um, trying to buy it. And that's, you know, in my view, Kate, a position of strength as opposed to one of weakness. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad place to be to have offers coming in for acquisitions. I'm kind of curious, um, you know, A, what those offers look like, B, how serious the offers were, and C, why Postmates um, wouldn't take an acquisition offer because I think, I mean, I'm a bit skeptical at how successful of an IPO Postmates can have at this point, just given, I mean, not only like the the legacy of Blue Apron, but also just how much Uber has struggled and and food delivery companies don't really have the greatest reputation of of managing to scale and continue to have success. So I feel like it wouldn't be the worst thing for Postmates to sell. What do you think? Well, it just depends on uh, what price. And, you know, I'm, I'm dying to see the S1 because I've, you know, I've heard that, like what you just said. I've also heard that things are better than I think. And I've also heard that some companies in the sector have margins that are terrifying. So I, I feel like I don't have enough pieces to kind of construct the puzzle. But um, Bastian, or Basti, as he goes by on Twitter, did say that his company was growing faster than Uber Eats and Grubhub. So at least mm-hmm. the implication yeah. of... Well, you know, maybe on a percentage basis, I don't know. Uh, but I thought that was interesting. And we can leave it there. I just wanted to kind of bring it up as a flag for everyone because eventually Postmates will end up as a major topic on the show. And that's kind of a breadcrumb um, along the way. Who's next on the list? Uh, it's the company we can't pronounce, actually. So Yeah, I, just, I didn't want to say it, so I was leaving it to you. I, I saw that. Uh, I'll take a crack <laughs> at it. Um, there's a company called D-O-U-Y-U, which we're pronouncing as Do You. Uh, which price this week? And Kate, uh, it had a price range of eleven fifty to fourteen dollars a share, and it priced right at the bottom, eleven fifty. Uh, were you back when this happened? 
No. So full disclosure, I just have didn't see an inkling of this news. Um, I've, I'm, uh, I do remember, you know, reading that they were going to go public and this is a large Chinese company. It's going to be a big IPO, but I, uh, completely unfamiliar with the price range and, um, don't, don't know a ton about the company. All right. Well, let me throw just a couple of things out there and we can scoot along, but, uh, People will recall that Huaya, H-U-Y-A, another China-based esports and streaming company, went public, I think it was six, nine months ago, and did pretty well. So this is kind of the second offering in that zone. And I thought, uh, incorrectly, that because Huaya had done well, that Do You would also probably do fine. It still managed to go public on the US market, so points there, but it didn't price uh, strongly. And I think it lost like 25 cents a share on its first day out. So it's another, you know, large unicorn China-based company going public in the U.S., but not showing a lot of pricing uh, strength, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, to close out the IPO update section, we just wanted to quickly give some earnings news. Um, CrowdStrike, which which was one of so many unicorns to go public in 2019, finally had uh, shared their first earnings report ever as a public company. So, um, you know, I don't remember what month it was, probably May, that CrowdStrike had their IPO, but CrowdStrike, if you're unfamiliar, is a um, cybersecurity company focused on endpoint protection. And actually, their first ever earnings report seems to have pleased everyone. They closed up high today and definitely came in with some numbers that were much larger than expected. So I'll just give just a couple of really macro level takeaways. Total revenue was $96.1 million, which was 103% increase from the fiscal quarter of one year before. So that's 103% increase year over year. Subscription revenue to the product was $86 million, which was 116% increased. Um, yeah, compared to $39.8 million a year previously. So yeah, I mean, they're growing really quick. I think that's why it was a well-performing IPO. Everything kind of seems like it's been stable. I don't know. How, how closely have you been following this um, IPO, Alex? I followed it pretty carefully up until the time it went public, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like I, w- Once it went out, I stopped caring because I mostly just cover companies until they go public, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah. throwing in one thing, like the way that this has been explained to me by IPO people is that when you go public, you have your first earnings report baked. Like you know that that first one's going to be good, which is why if a company goes public and then struggles immediately, it's extra shocking because everyone's kind of expecting you to have that one figured out. So I'm not surprised that CrowdStrike did so well. I will just say though, based on what you told us, very impressive numbers. Anytime your subscription revenue as a SaaS company is up over a hundred percent, and you're, you know, in the teens, the the eight figure revenue range per quarter, it's very impressive. So just strong numbers. Yeah. No, I mean, you're right. Going public is so much about timing. So what you said about the fact, I mean, it's not surprising because they probably timed it in a way that where they knew their first earnings report would be strong. It's kind of like why a scooter company probably wouldn't want their first earnings report to cover the winter season uh, because that's when they make no money. So they probably time their IPO to avoid that. I want to point out to all of our friends listening that we are not going to cover in this episode the bird scooter drama. And that is a gift to everyone because we've covered scooters too much, we know. And so we're going to leave it alone. But in my heart, I wanted to, but I'm not going to yeah, do well, it. We just, we, we didn't have the chance to talk about it on the podcast, but we had a big mobility event in San Jose last week um, where we talked so much about scooters that I think I don't want to talk about scooters for like three months. Okay. Uh, I'll give you two weeks. How about that? <laughs> I'll give you one hour. <laughs> scooters now. Okay. Um, no, let's move on to other unicorns or other potential unicorns. Now- <laughs> Kate, Forbes dropped an article this week about the next unicorn class, kind of the companies that they think are going to become uh, the next big thing, if you will, inside of the tech and startup world. And you broke these down based on least surprising and also some most surprising. So uh, where do you want to start? 
Um, let's just start with the the least surprising ones. And I think um, people probably will be interested in, in the ones we found least surprising because even some of the ones that we pointed out aren't exactly the most buzzworthy companies. Like Rothy's, which is a eco-friendly shoe startup, I think people wouldn't be surprised by that one because they are a consumer brand that's exploded. They're boasting revenue of like $140 million. Dang. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, I was a little surprised by that, but... But yeah, they're they're raking in funding. People are wearing them. You know, you see it on the streets. It's it's just one of those things like Away or um, Allbirds mm-hmm. that has pretty immediate success with consumers, and then just there, you know, as a result, gallops into the unicorn club maybe faster than others. That one, yeah, not surprised. Remitly, which is a remittances company that's actually based in Seattle, I wasn't surprised by it because they've had sustainable growth. I've noticed. Uh, for the last several years, like they've been really heads down, working hard. I think it's a company that of global importance. Wasn't surprised. Uh, Front is a um, multi-channel inbox where you assign tasks, follow, comment, and analyze efficiency. So it's something I think just for enterprises. It's sort of yeah. like a communication platform type of thing. So I've heard, I have not covered this company, but it's one of the ones that I hear time and again brought up by VCs, sort of uh-huh. like with a lot of FOMO for it. So again, not super surprising. Next Trucking, huge, huge company exploding. Um, awesome female founder that is just so incredibly talented. I think building a really strong business. I believe that one's based out of LA. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Can I throw in two? I, I was not yeah. surprised to see Figma. Um, I actually met, oh gosh, okay, here's a sentence. I uh, re-met the founder at a Kleiner Perkins dinner. There you go. Um, <laughs> but I I really liked their uh, CEO. I really thought he was not not a typical Silicon Valley CEO, not super chest poundy and you know shouty, but just very interesting. Just really nice to talk to and uh, nice to see them doing well. And then one more, uh, Divi made the list. I've mm-hmm. covered them. I think they're based out of Utah. Uh, they work in the, are, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but they work in the um, expenses space uh, for companies, if you will. Yep. And they have discussed, I think they said they quote insane product market fit. So I, I bet they're growing revenue very quickly and more points to them. It's good to see non-Silicon Valley companies do well. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to point out that I inadvertently put several that are not in Silicon Valley. So that's nice. And there are so many companies in the expense, corporate expense, travel expense space right now. And I just really hope that they become so successful because I just don't want to use Concur anymore. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I left TechCrunch years ago was because of Concur. <laughs> Little known fact. Honestly, yeah. It's the, it's the worst thing. And every time I interview a CEO working on an expense platform, or so, I'm just like, can you convince my boss to adopt <laughs> your software? Because I just really need, really need to stop using Concur. You really got to like find the Verizon CEO's cell phone number and then write it down and just hand it out to every single company working in the expense space. And maybe one time it'll work, you know? So that's not a bad idea. Maybe I will do that. Uh, so the CEO's listening, please uh, email Kate your number. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> uh, most surprising, two of the top, Kate, because they're not worth as much as we thought. Who are they? Duolingo, which I mean, I think everyone listening is familiar with that. I mean, it's something that you talk about with your friends as people are using it, have been for a long time. Was surprised that they... I think it's just one of those companies where you don't think too hard about it and you kind of just assume they've already garnered kind of a large valuation, but clearly they're not quite to the billion dollar club. And another one within that same category is Patreon, which we all know, um, and we'll talk about momentarily, raised a $60 million round this week that valued it at $660 million, but it's still, you know, several millions away from that billion dollar (laughs) valuation. Several millions. Um I would, I would go with several dozens of millions. I don't know. I think there's different ways we could uh, we could flex that. Uh, anyways, I'll stop being annoying and move on. Um, other companies that surprised us. One of them was Lattice. Kate, this this surprised you because it didn't seem to be as as big uh, as the other companies on the list. I, I felt like you know when you look at companies like Remitly or Rothy's or Next Trucking, like you have very you know you have um, high revenues, fast growth. Maybe you have a consumer brand that's 
just attracted so much mm. attention. You have these clear signals. Lattice, you know, according to the Forbes story, has about seven, eight million dollars in, in revenue. Um, they've raised up twenty seven point five million in venture capital. Um, that's you know, it's, that's that's nothing to scoff at, but it's still kind of a modest amount if you're thinking about unicorn status. And I guess to me, I wasn't seeing those signals. And, and I have spoken with this company before. I'm familiar with what they do. It's HR software. And I just didn't think th that's just not a company that I would have said, hey, I think this is going to be a billion dollar company. But there is one thing unique about this company. And that is the founder is Sam Altman's brother. Mm. So Alex and I were discussing before we recorded, you know, the notoriety, nor notoriety and network of a founder can determine a lot about the future of a company. So I think in this case, that's probably a I mean, a part of why it made it on that list, right? And there was one other thing, Alex. What was the other thing? We did notice, according to the story, they have a number of high-profile customers. Coinbase uh, and WeWork, I think, were on the list. And so, you know, when you have uh, really like, famous, well-known, cool customers, that can probably add to your buzz. It definitely builds your awareness inside of Silicon Valley. They can drive up investor interest. So, you know, there's probably a lot going on here, but it didn't strike us as the most obvious uh, inductee into the next unicorn class. But uh, time will tell, Kate. We'll see. And the last one that I had just noted on our list of surprising um, entries to this list was TruePill. Now, I wasn't surprised because I don't think they should be on the list. I just, I don't know, I saw it and I was like, huh, yeah, I guess they do have the potential to really reach that. So TruePill is kind of like a 21st century pharmacy that powers a lot of these direct-to-consumer brands, um, kind of like Nurex, which is a direct-to-consumer birth control startup. So like, yeah. you know, Nurex is this consumer-facing brand that sort of facilitates the the relationship between like a pharmacy um, and a consumer. But of course, you actually need a pharmacy to power companies that are doing this. They're not typically companies that are actually handling um, the entire process. So, you know, long story short, um, TruePill has benefited from companies like Nurex and Hims, Lemonade, um, and many others that are sort of trying to make it a lot easier for customers to get access to medications. So it, it does make a ton of sense. It's kind of one of those behind the scenes companies. And it's it's had great traction. It's raised capital. I don't think it will be entering the billion dollar club, you know, in the next couple of years or anything, but we'll see. Yeah, no, it's always fun to see the companies that are powering the companies that we talk about the most. And a good example of this is mm -hmm. Twilio. Uh, back in the day, Twilio powered, and maybe they still do somewhat, uh, powered like the Uber SMS notifications, like your car is here. And everyone loved how Uber would like text you because back then that was kind of neat and new. And people didn't realize that Twilio was growing like mad in the background because they were selling the pipes that allowed that to happen, at least for uh, a, a portion of Uber's history. Um, and Twilio since then has done fantastically well. So, you know, often it's the companies that are selling picks and shovels that end up um, doing very well. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Uh, shall we talk about some hot new rounds, Kate? Yeah, our favorite topic, of course. Our favorite topic. Also, I said hot very weirdly there. I want to take that back and just say cool new rounds. There we go. So the first round we're going to talk about today is a Series B, uh, aka a new capital event for a company called 100 Thieves, which you'll note is not an enterprise software company, nor does it work in cybersecurity. 100 Thieves is an esports uh, team organization, if you will, and they picked up $35 million. And this caught our eye for kind of two reasons. The first is that it raised a Series A less than a year ago, 25 million back in October of 2018. And also the fact that it's an esports company, uh, a genre of firm that we don't often talk about on this show, uh, but one of my favorite little industries out there because I am a big dork for video games. It sounds like VCs are very interested in this company. Yes. Whenever we see people kind of get preempted in this way, it generally means there's a lot of traction, uh, hype or growth kind of behind the scenes that's driving that. Uh, and also we noticed they had an amazing answer. Um, 
they said that raising the Series B will allow them to accelerate their growth, which is the most generic thing I think I've ever heard. But uh, I, I have some more notes about this. Essentially, they have a multi-part business model. So they sell merchandise, they participate in tournaments, they have advertising, and they also have uh, a set of podcasts. So the it's kind of a neat, not single, uh, there's many parts to this company. Um, and as an esports fan myself, I've been very familiar with them and I like to see maturity in the space, um, especially in a way that's going to support like uh, p- stability for players, if that makes sense. Because esports used to be very uh, immature and didn't do a great job taking care of the individual kind of uh, athletes, if you will, in the space. But Kate, I think you have an esports story. So tell us that. Yeah, well, I don't have a ton of exposure to esports, but I did get to watch an esports match at South by Southwest this year. And I think it was a pretty riveting experience. So I, I definitely, I mean, I don't play video games, but I understand having had that experience, I can understand the appeal and kind of the community that's built around these teams, which I think was the most interesting thing for me to observe because these were people that actually traveled together for the South by tournament, but like had been, you know, of course, working together, competing remotely, and then, you know, have these really wonderful relationships established from it. But I want to ask you a couple questions because I read your story and I was, you know, you, you called it a team and you said it again, you said it's a team and it's also a company, but what do you mean by that? Well, okay. So backing up just for a second, what esport or what video game did you watch at South by? Okay. Well, I feel like if I say it and I'm what, it might turn out that I wasn't esports, but it was, um, uh, Halo. Okay. Yes. Chris is nodding. Uh, so that is esports. Halo does have a history of being an esport. It's not a super big current title. And the reason why I ask is some esports have uh, a team component. Some are kind of 1v1. So in like the fighting game world. And it was the teams. Yeah, for sure. It was two big teams against each other. Right. Okay. So um, companies like 100 Thieves or my favorite esports group called Team Liquid uh, often will have multiple teams under one banner. So 100 Thieves, for example, doesn't just play one game like League of Legends or just Fortnite. They have teams in different games. It's essentially like imagining uh, the Warriors also playing football and baseball, if that makes sense. So they have kind of a franchise name and a central company, and they also support players around the esports mm-hmm. world. Uh, this is relatively common. Team Liquid does this, and I think uh, TSM as well. So there's, I think this is a pretty common thing. But it allows them to have almost a diversified exposure to the industry. So that way, if one game or one title, one esport loses some preeminence, uh, they still have a hand in all of the other games. Um, and if you've been a baseball fan, you know that game's been around for like 6,000 years or whatever. Esports moves a bit more quickly. And I think that that's just kind of a, a facet of the, the genre, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So big brand is the company that runs the teams that compete in individual games. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think we don't talk a ton about esports on the podcast, though I'm sure we have in the past because over the last year or actually two years, investors have gotten a lot more excited about the opportunity in esports. I think as they realize the opportunity in the space is huge, especially among the younger generation. Gen Z is all about esports. There's lots of money to be made there. And I think it'll be really interesting to keep watch. Anyways, all I want to say is go Team Liquid. And I hope that 100 Thieves wins no more games of law this year. And that's enough of me being petty. We can move back to the financial world. Kate, there's a Patreon Series D and a new valuation. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So as we, you know, we were just discussing Patreon a minute ago, but they raised a 60 million round about two years after their Series C. Their new valuation is $660 million following a $450 million valuation with their Series C. So for those who are not familiar, Patreon basically provides the infrastructure for subscriptions that are tailored for creators. So if you are a creator like a um, podcaster, a painter, a comic, maybe you make videos or um, some other form of media for fans online, you can use 
Patreon to actually make money from from doing this. So the latest with their big new $60 million round is they're going to expand their products to actually support these creators in other ways other than just subscriptions. It's sort of a pivot toward SaaS for Patreon. And I think it's actually a really critical time for the company to prove that they're more than just a subscription business tailored for creators. Because while they've gained a lot of popularity by doing this, it hasn't necessarily proved to be enough of a money earning business to please, you know, the the many venture capitalists who have invested because Patreon at this point's raised upwards of $200 million, you know, at a state valuation. Yeah. And they eventually they're going to have to provide liquidity. So they need to prove that they have a great business. So I think right now we're going to see, you know, over the next year, we're going to see Patreon really prove that they can do more than just provide these subscriptions, which again, have been really amazing and helpful for these creators. Patreon says they're closing in on $1 billion funneled back into creators because they take a 10% stake. That's $100 million in revenue. So I think they're in a good place, but have some work to do before they, you know, get to the point where, say, they IPO or they sell or get to the point where they even become a unicorn like Forbes is expecting them to do. Yeah. The only thing I would throw in there is I think I'm a little bit more optimistic about their progress to date because, you know, you can't raise another $60 million if you don't have some some compelling numbers. And I bet part of that round was their, their new SaaS story. We're going to expand our offerings, you know, have higher levels of revenue and so forth, not just take a cut of, uh, of payments. But, you know, you, you don't get 60 million at this stage only based on a story. So the numbers must have been pretty good, you know, at, at a minimum. So I, I guess I'm optimistic. Maybe I'm overly optimistic here, but I think Patreon has found a really good place in our economy. And I think it's helped a lot of individual artists and whatnot actually yeah. get to do their their craft for a living you know and I, fundamentally as a as an art nerd to a small degree that's really cool and i i hope they don't fail if that makes sense i i absolutely hope they don't fail and i'm and i'm optimistic too and i think it's a great great idea and i think it's a great business you know just saying they have work to do although to your point about you can't raise 60 million dollars just going off a good story i mean i think that's that's what we'd like to believe but i think it happens more often than we we might realize that companies are actually able to attract investors with a really good narrative. Like, I mean, I think WeWork has done that time and again. I think a lot of companies have done that. Master storytellers. In this case of Patreon, I don't think that's the case at all. I think they have enough proof points and they also have a great narrative of where they're going and their path forward. But I think it does happen. Um, yeah, this is the downside to being on our side of the table, always looking at small bits of information, trying to link them all together. Um, if only we had more data, this would be a much easier job. Uh, but let's scoot on to our last round, which is probably my favorite of the of the last couple of weeks. So Substack has raised a Series A, uh, a $15.3 million round, if our notes hold up, from Andreessen uh, and participation from YC. YC was a prior investor in the company. I think they raised about $2 million before, give or take. And uh, if you don't know what Substack is, I'll give you the shortest little, little take. It's essentially a blog and an email newsletter in one. So you can write an entry and publish it to your blog and also have it go out to email subscribers and it supports paid newsletters. And I, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of like a cool kid, Kate, in the uh, tech world because a lot of journalists use it now. So it's kind of like in the zeitgeist, if you will. It is in the zeitgeist. Yeah, I mean, I was... They haven't raised a ton of money yet. They really, well, I guess I am biased because I'm, you know, I use Twitter to stay up on the news. I follow a lot of journalists. Journalists are definitely into Substack because they're using it to publish their own personal newsletters and actually make a little extra money. So I'm pretty familiar with it. So I guess to me, it was like, oh, wow, yeah, this company is very notable. Everybody knows about it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But of course, not everybody knows about it. But I guess what I want to point out is they've really managed to get a lot of traction and free PR just, um, I, I mean, I don't think they're really 
probably paying for a lot of marketing. It's it's one of those things that word of mouth really gets you a long way. I mean, so for example, I needed to update my personal website. I was on some old Squarespace build that I couldn't even like update anymore because I was on the wrong version of it. And I was going to have to do this weird like changeover to the new Squarespace. And I was like, whatever, I'll just get something new. I went with uh, Substack. So like if you go to my website, um, I guess I can plug it. That's okay. AlexWilhelm.com. There you go. Um, yeah, I try to not plug things on the show because it's you know not for that. Uh, anyways, and I, I use Substack and it was really, really great because I just wanted to have a place to write. And if people wanted to get my own little meanderings about my life, they could get them via email too. And that it was super easy and fast. And honestly, I, they're adding a lot of features and I, I dig it. It's, it's cool to root for a product that you really kind of like, I guess. Like this, in this case, good job. And I'm glad these people raised money. Yeah, I agree. And, and another thing that I think is really fascinating about this is so this company raised 15 million it's three people and they're still working out of their living room so i mean you know of course tiny teams working out of their living rooms or garages or whatever um is not uncommon but i guess just again given the fact that this is a company that has really managed to enter the tech zeitgeist and attract a lot of really notable people onto its platform it's really fascinating to see that there's still three employees working from their living room. Yeah. And one last data point on this is that they, I think according to their their blog post, they have about 50,000 paid email subscribers, which is a modest start. You know, that's pretty good. And I think, you know, I did a little math. So this is all stuff that I made up. But if the average cost is $5 a month for one of these email newsletters, it's about $3 million in gross platform spend per year, if my multiplication is correct. I think it is. So the company's like gross platform spend, to use that, that phrase again, isn't huge yet, but I think there's a lot of potential for this sort of thing to work because the podcast boom, I think, shows there's demand in the market for uh, niche and narrative-based content uh, for money that maybe wasn't understood before, before we kind of figured out uh, podcasting and email newsletters for individuals. So I'm bullish, but uh, if Kate, do you, do you remember Subtle, S-V-B-T-L-E, I think it was? From like five, six years ago? No, I thought I saw your note in our script and I just thought you had misspelled subtle. No, I think that's what is that? I think that's correct. It was like a blogging network that everyone wanted to join if you were like a, a wannabe cool kid on Twitter like I was. And so mm-hmm. we all tried to get on this like kind of super cool blogging network and they raised like a million dollars and then they didn't really do much. And I think they kind of just slowly faded away. So like, you know, there's some history of like cool products that journalists like not going very well. But I think Substack is over the hump, if you will. Oh, go for it. I guess. So, of course, I'm really bullish about podcasts. I feel like that's really a, a proven medium. But when it comes to email newsletters, I feel like that's something that really has blown up this year. And I and I I mean, of course, I have a newsletter, but I do it through my job. So it's a little different. But these personalized ones, I kind of wonder. I I, I wonder if this is really going to be something that sticks. Like, I mean, you know, you, you're doing it. What do you think? Do you think this is something that people are going to continue to pay for? Uh, well, mine's free because I don't think my random meanderings about like music I like is is worth money. But I, I think if you look at some of the early successes and the early proof points, which is um, I'm going to ruin this. Uh, Bill Bishop's uh, newsletter on China, I think is his name. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Very popular. I think he was an early uh, kind of um, uh, person on Substack. I think those things show that with proper creation and care, you can you can pull it off. And they keep saying, you know, if you can get like a thousand fans. At 10 bucks a month, you can build your own business and be your own creator or journalist or whatever and not have to answer to anyone. And that siren song will always be appealing to the creative classes of the world because that mm-hmm. that, that ability to have freedom in, in how you build and create your work is the holy grail. It is the dream. So if people show up with their wallets, this could be a revolution 
honestly, in how we we create art and writing and all that. Um, if people don't want to pay for it, it's going to be a neat niche tool for people like me who uh, can't shut up. So we'll see where it lands. Yeah, well, just like Patreon, I'm very excited about the opportunity for Substack and I'm rooting for them. So two companies we're rooting for, excited to see them raise capital. And I think that is it for this week. So thanks for joining me, Alex. Yeah, good to talk to you, Kate. Good to be back. And uh, we'll be back in seven days. So everyone sit tight. Yep, see you next week. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, And we will see you all right here next week. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital podcast. I'm TC reporter Kate Clark, and this week I'm back with Equity co-host and Crunchbase news editor Alex Wilhelm. And just as a small note, I am back from vacation, and I have not been watching the news super carefully. So we'll be selecting my favorite things, and we're only going to talk about that. And I don't care what Alex thinks. Alex, how are you? I think we should just use that as an intro. <laughs>